Hello and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are. Helping you find a more positive way through your grief. Hello and welcome back to the Widow podcast. It's lovely to have you here again and today I am really excited and very honoured to be speaking to the lovely Holly Matthews. Holly is a widow, a mum. She is the founder of the Happy Me Project, a no-nonsense, straight-talking life coach (laughs) who is a self-confessed, resilient AF person. And all round awesome girl. She really is amazing. And I'm really excited to share her story with you today. And and hopefully you'll be able to draw some some strength from what she says and some tips because Holly just knows it all. And if you're not already following her on Instagram, you absolutely have to because her reels are amazing. Um, So Holly, hello. Thank you so much. What an awesome introduction. Thank you very, very much. I feel very flattered and I'm very thrilled to be here chatting to you. Oh, it's so lovely. Honestly, your Instagram, like I don't know how you find the time, the imagination, the ideas, like, like it seems like you're you're po- they're, and they are they're so straight talking and to the point and just let's go on with it let's do it and I brilliant. think people think there's more thought goes into them I I'm quite surprised sometimes and I purely think it's just like years of talking a lot and um, <laughs> where I just like I'll, I'm probably like I've just got off the toilet or something and I'll stick a camera on my face and I'm like right let's just do it just say something yeah. and sometimes interesting stuff comes out I'm like yeah that'll be a real that'll be a thing it's pockets of time I've gotten used to everything being a something so my Mm. eye will seek out things and I think oh that's an interesting thought or somebody will say something and I mean my phone is full of notes that if anybody read them they would think this is the ramblings of a lunatic this is a (laughs) lunatic but in my head they could be a course this could be a pulse this could be a something this is a I don't know but I mean I look back on them sometimes and like well what was that about but it's pockets of time that I use as best I can and I like the creative side of that as well that's kind of my fun stuff so I'm probably procrastinating actually as well <laughs> is there something else you should be doing <laughs> yes, well you're clearly very very creative and, and I think that that's obvious from your your history isn't it I mean you yeah. go back do you want to tell us a bit about where, where you started where did I begin so I started as a tv actress and that was kind of all I thought I always I just thought entertainment industry I want to be an actress when I was I was 11 when I started in the tv industry And I, I mean, if you'd spoken to me then and said, my name is Holly, I'm an actress. I affirmed it always. I knew what I wanted. I mean, God knows like how or where that really came from because my dad was a welder. My mum worked in a bank and there was no history of like theatrics or they're probably quite dramatic, but I don't think they'd ever, like nobody was doing that. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I worked in the TV industry for a long time. I grew up on television on a TV show called Biker Grove for those that are, probably my age or, or a little bit older and would have known that was a it was a huge success um in in those times and for me it was weird because it meant I grew up on a platform when people didn't have platforms not like now I mean my kids couldn't care 
unless whether I am like on TV or anything, it just doesn't interest them in the slightest because they're like, well, everyone's on telly because they mean YouTube and YouTube is on the telly. So they're like, so what? But when you and I were growing up, it was actually quite a big deal to be on TV. Yeah. Uh, just not so much now. And, and so, yeah, I did for years. I was a TV actress, Waterloo Road, by go over the bill, casualty, and just did the rounds of, of TV and film. I signed to Sony when I was... I want to say it was like 18, 19, something like 18 or 19 and, and did, you know, Top of the Pops and MTV and all of this kind of very tick tick box, um, you know, entertainment stuff. And I, I really didn't think I would do anything else. It was all that interested me and and just being a storyteller and, and, and being creative and basically being a massive child and playing for a living that's what I wanted to do I still do actually just want to pretend and play all day no I do absolutely it's the best way so what why did that come to an end or when did that come to an end for you so when so my husband Ross as you know was diagnosed with brain cancer in 2014 and we had two children at the time Brooke and Texas and they were really little so Brooke would would have been nearly two I think or no sorry nearly three and Texas would have been nearly one so they were really little and Ross was diagnosed with brain cancer when that happened I had this huge shift and it was very surreal for me because it's the type of shift that we only get when big painful stuff happens I think when something really real happens like that when it's painful or so tragic or traumatic where where literally the foundations of who we are and what we believe and our values are shifted and for me that you know my whole life and, and anyone who's in the particularly the entertainment industry we are so one track minded because you have to be the most ambitious the most driven you have to be so focused and I was I was like tunnel visioned I'm I'm getting that Oscar like that's where I you know I was I'm going to go to America we're going to do that thing that's the next stage then when Ross was diagnosed with brain cancer rare brain cancer I just had no idea why I wanted to do any of it like it was such a shift in my core beliefs and values that I had no understanding and no desire and not because I was normal scared it was literally like a shift happened in my brain if it wasn't a shift I would still have that same pull and I don't have that same pull to do this do it in the same way I still have a a pull to um, tv but in a very different way now and it was, it was just such a shift. And, and I actually, I think I, I just finished doing BBC Casualty. I don't, I've done it a few times, but this was a particularly um, challenging few episodes and, uh, in terms of the character. It was a sexual assault case. It was a really big one. And I just finished doing that. There was a lot of hype because the, the you know, it was quite a big deal. I got to showcase my acting quite well. And so I'd had a lot of interest in me coming in for auditions and screenings and and I'd booked a film that I was doing. I was playing, I think, a footballer's wife in something, um, some film. And when Ross was diagnosed, I just didn't care. And I rang my agent and I was like, just, just, just stop everything. Like, I'm not, not interested. I'm just don't want to do anything. I'm not going to. And, you know, you'll know yourself that in, in those moments of like such awful news and, and tragedy and, and things that you go through, you just what matters in the end is love and connection and actually all of the stuff that's outside of us and all of the things that we put huge great scope on our jobs and our status and our homes and our car none of that matters when it when it really 
when real stuff happens, none of that matters at all. And you recognize that, I, you know, for me, it was, well, Ross and I could be sat in a tent in the middle of a field and I know that would be happy. I'd be, that would be enough. That'd be more than enough. It wouldn't, I wouldn't need more than that. In which case, do I need any of the other outside stuff? And it was a real sort of, you know, I guess, crisis of, of who I was for a moment to kind of reestablish what that looked like. But, but I, in the last year, I have dabbled back in some acting stuff and I've enjoyed it in a different way. It's not where, the way it was before, where it was like this, this kind of almost momentum of like a pull to a drive to do it. It's just, that would be fun. And I did a, a TV series, a comedy series I filmed at the end of last year. I don't even know when it goes out actually or where it goes out. It might be Amazon or something. And um, it was really fun. It was just fun. Like I just yeah. had a laugh and I got to pretend and it didn't have the same pressure. And it felt like, like I can never say never, like I might do some more acting, but it doesn't, it's just not everything. It's just yeah. not everything anymore. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right, that is a huge shift, isn't it? To, to from where you were to kind of I'm going to America, I'm getting an Oscar, I'm I'm on this path and I'm going there to all of a sudden cancel it. But none of it means anything anymore. Was that the beginning of your your self-development journey at that point? Um, yes and no. So I always did self-development for myself. And that was absolutely a response to being on TV and a response to having this platform. And, you know, certainly when I first started doing self-development, I must have been about 10 years old. I, I was meditating and I was doing affirmations and I was writing little um I was writing my sad thoughts on pieces of paper and setting fire to them. Um, I have spoken about this before, but there was an incident when I was about 13 where a small fire ensued in my bedroom. And um, although the fire didn't catch hold and there was like a house burned down or anything, I, I had a metal ball in my room and I made the fire in the metal ball and little fire happened. I was burning my negative thoughts. I was like, let's get rid of these. I just made this up. I don't know where it came from. Just made up this idea. I burned them and then I'll feel better and cleansed and it'll all be lovely. And, the fire ensued. I put the fire out then tried to get the metal ball off the carpet and it was just welded solid. Like I just melted the whole carpet. Um, so I was not allowed an open flame in my room after that, just, um, which Funny should that. never be in the first place. But, you know, 90s kids, we were allowed to do whatever we wanted. Just it was it was it was like uh, it was chaos. We were feral. And um, so I, I was doing it for myself for a long time in the background. And I was always reading self-development books. I used to go and I know if anybody younger, possibly your audience will not be very, very young. But, you know, anybody younger would not understand the struggle of not having access to things. I mean, I had we had in Carter was our first internet, which was not the internet. And um, I, we went to a library. Ooh, do people do? So I love a library. But I used to go to the library and take out like hypnosis audios and like self-development stuff. And I just had this real interest. And I think it's actually very linked to acting anyway. So as an actor, my job is to learn about people's minds, to understand the character's mind, but then to walk around in their shoes and pretend to be them. As a coach now and in self-development, I have to learn about people's minds. I have to walk in their shoes and understand. I just don't pretend to be my clients anymore. That would be really strange. <laughs> I don't think people would think that's appropriate. But it, it, at the time, I was just working on it for myself to, to bounce back from you know the rejections that you have as an actor, the the, the being on that platform where you will be judged and, and pointed and you're the girl off the telly and, and all of this stuff. And 
I had a lot of um, body dysmorphia stuff when I was growing up and hated the way that I looked and I needed to understand how not to feel rubbish. So I did all of that myself in my own personal life. When Ross was diagnosed with brain cancer, I was talking about this stuff. Like I, I, mean, I was probably talking it out for myself, but people around me started to gravitate towards me and, and to ask more about that and to try to understand it. I had already been coaching people on confidence which I just did outside of acting. I was, I was kind of teaching people largely how to pretend to be confident. They want to look confident for meetings or auditions or socially. And I was teaching them that, but I was also kind of, because I knew it, talking to them about the internal confidence and self-belief and how you do that. So I was always doing it. And, and I actually asked one of my friends who was on Biker Grove with me as a kid, we, we stayed, we've stayed in touch over the years. And we were talking about this because I was like, I don't know when... I started talking about self-development and coaching and mindset stuff. And she was like, oh, always. And I couldn't really remember. And she's known me since I was like 11 or 12. And she was like, I remember we'd be sitting on the, we had a tutor, a tutor bus. So when we weren't at school, we would go on the tutor bus and we had to have tutoring between scenes, between filming. She was like, you'd be on the tutor bus and everyone would be listening to you because you'd be giving some like motivational speech about like how life is not a dress rehearsal. And how and I was like, oh my God, what was I? She's like, I, was, I did not remember. She was like, yeah, you're always doing it. Like it was always the thing that we would always like listen. But I, I don't really remember that. But I think there was always that when I learned something like that, I would want to share it. And then when Ross was diagnosed and I'm very, I've always been very entrepreneurial. I think I realized that while I was at home, that was actually something I could do. I could talk about my journey. I could share ideas, things that I was doing. And it kind of very organically began to happen as it became, you know, I started to then train in, in life coaching as a more professional thing and, um, and realize actually this was a way of, I guess it was a way of quenching that thirst of, I love people. I love understanding how our brains work. And when I was acting, I was still doing that. So it, it, it kind of it hit that spot there. But I realized actually that side of me who had that interest in people could get this in this world as well. I could get that sort of hit of what I love talking about, which is our brains. Mm -hmm. and, and so it kind of happened, yes, alongside Ross's diagnosis. And then after his death kind of propelled even further. Do you think all of doing that, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a natural instinct within you that you are naturally that way inclined, but then, you know, when Ross was diagnosed with the brain tumor that you, you kind of dive deeper into it, did that help you through that, that time of his illness and up to his death and then obviously afterwards? Yeah, hugely, because the more I learn, I was learning things for me. I was learning things for my clients and, and it all helped. It all kind of, I guess when it's when it becomes something where it's your job as well, you're do, you're researching and learning because it's part of what you should be doing for your work. But it was helping me, and often my work, you know, we we're talking obviously about Instagram and things like that. My work often comes from my lived experience that I just always think if I'm feeling this, somebody else is feeling this. Mm -hmm. So I, I usually do things very much in real time where I'm like, if I feel flat, then someone else is sat there feeling the same. Well, I will share a post. I will put a course together. I will do a thing. So I think, yes, it, it kind of it's kind of twofold. Like it, it feeds the work that I was doing, but also it was helping me as well and helping me to remember what 
some of the stuff which I already knew, but remember it and remember to do it and to have that accountability to show up in those ways and do the things that I know nourish me and help me to, to get through things. Definitely the biggest thing I think that helped me was because of being an actor and having to have that grit and that bounce back and resilience and reframing ability, you know, if you don't get a part in the acting world, it's not like a job. You don't get a phone call to say, I'm really sorry you didn't get the job. It's literally just waiting and it's like, all right, didn't come off then. Like it's horrible. It's horrible. It's so disrespectful and the industry needs to change massively because it's just disrespectful. People do loads of work, go to an audition and then just hear nothing again because it's just not time. And so I had really cultivated that ability to reframe. Or it's it's not necessarily me. They just went another way. You know, they went with whatever. I'd learned to reframe. And actually, when it came to Ross having brain cancer and then Ross's death and and end of life, and then going forward into the the grief forward. It's always been about where is the good? There's always good somewhere in this shit storm. There is good. And that has become my superpower. Like my superpower is I'll find the good. And I am very science-based in my approach. And it is literally science for every negative there is a positive. And that is always in my mind that I can allow space for the sadness, allow space for the anger, allow space for all of the stuff that we will go through as people going through trauma and grief. But then also have that ability to seek out the good. And that is that is trained. And I think people will look at me perhaps and especially when I'm talking about doing this from such a young age and think well that's just then it's just a a personality trait and it oh it's just you're born with it or you're not it's genetics and there is a there is an element I there is not there's not there is some evidence there is a genetic slight slight leaning one way of the other where it's easier to be a little bit more positive but there's a huge chunk a huge chunk and I forgot the maths on it you can look it up there is a huge chunk where it is in our control and the reality is we can do nothing about the genetic makeup we can't do anything about that's no point talking about it is there you can't do anything mm-hmm. but we can do the bit with the the bit that we have control of and, and that's what interests me and I have watched clients and friends and family who never did this stuff then learned the skills that you and I will, will work with our clients on and have seen a shift I have watched people go from I mean I am that person I went from like I hated myself in terms of my confidence and my belief in myself I was so body dysmorphic I I thought I was an ogre that people would collapse on the floor and never want to look at like if I can go from that where I literally and I I wish people because people meet me now as a fully functioning adult as fully functioning as I can (laughs) adult and they'll see me and they'll think she's confident she must have always been that way I was not one, I was good at faking confidence for a long time. I was great at it. I knew how to act like a confident person, but I wasn't in the background and it's taken me a long time. It's taken me years of learning. And I look, when people tell me, well, some people are just not very confident. I'm like, it's learned behavior. You learn to be shy and you learn to be unconfident. You can learn the other way. Not saying it's easy because it's not, is it? And the same with happiness or moving forward from, from painful grief. It's not easy. Of course it's not, but it's not impossible guys we have to it's not impossible there's stuff we can do yeah and I think that's a really important message isn't it it's it's like you can change things you can change the way you think you can change the way you feel you can change the way you view the world 
to help you um and and i think we get stuck in a in a rut and also that idea of well it's all right for them they can do it that's what they know and it's not exactly to your point we have we learn our thoughts and our, and our behaviors so we can unlearn them and relearn them and 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 it's all possible and just because people see one snapshot of yeah. say, you and i talking right we both talk very freely about our pain and our grief and all of that stuff and we are talking about moments but let me tell you those those are not all of the moments like there are moments when i'm i have and still will be and have been in utter despair at the fact that my husband is dying in utter despair of how on earth do i navigate being a single mom i didn't ask for this i didn't ask to be the anger that that in, ensues in you the rage the you know the responsibility i have felt all of and do feel all of those things so it's not uh, you know, once you've done the stuff and you've ticked the boxes, you're, it's all done and dusted. Of course it's not. It's an everyday lived experience. And I really believe that we have to listen to what we need and what we personally need in this moment and not judge it. Stop judging yourself. Like we, there are some days when it's just like wading through treacle, like it's hard and it feels hard. And you think, you know, your brain wants to give you the worst case scenario stories. And we will go into very black and white thinking where we think just, well, it's Robert, I can't do any of this. And everybody's better than me. Everybody, everybody's coping better. And look at them. They're all doing their thing. And I can't do anything. And they don't know how bad it is. And we've got all these stories. You're not alone. I am you. You, you are, you are people that I listen as well, Karen. And it's it, that is so important for us all to know because we have such a snapshot of clean cut social media profiles that we believe are people's lived experience and I know even mine you know like you're seeing me talk about stuff you you know I maybe and I'm really conscious of this I don't always share the worst moments one because some of my worst moments include my children which that's not my story to tell that's not my story but some of you know I even in my worst moments now have this ability and I say now I have this now have this ability because it's cultivated and it's practiced and this is why we've got to do the thing over and over again we've got to keep practicing the stuff I now have the ability even in my most in my darkest moments that I think it won't always feel like this Mm. and I've just got it it's almost like this feeling of just hang on just grip on and I saw a quote in Brene Brown's new book it was going to be I'm looking around because I thought it was going to be out on my table because everything else is believe me everything is out on this table um but the quote in there and it was like a pull out on one of the books and it just said we need hope like we need air and I'm like oh that's I mean and that's in those moments it's just give me the life rough like I need something to get me through this bit and when you are a widow, when you are grieving in that those depths, there are moments when it's like, I'm drowning, somebody give me a life raft. And, and that's why we do what we do, because mm-hmm. we can sometimes be that life raft for people. But equally, what people may not get is that by being that person, that's our life raft. Like, that's how we get up. I get up by, I don't know, I've, got, I've lost my metaphor now, but I get up by helping other people get yeah. up. And that helps me to get up. And you know, I, I know that's not the case. It's not going to be everybody's life raft to do that, but we need those moments and we need to recognize that when we're in the depths of it, it's not forever. It won't feel like that forever. It, yeah. And but I think that's really hard to see, isn't it? At the very beginning, you know, I remember Simon died just thinking, 
oh my God, this is, this is it. This is my life. My best days are behind me. This is how am I ever going to get over this? I'm this pain's never going to subside. And you kind of attach yourself to these stories because you don't know any better because grief isn't really talked about and, 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 and people aren't out there. I think the more I've got along the journey, the more I've, I've kind of found people, but you know, widely it's, it's not hugely talked about. Yeah. And, and trying to find people that offer that that hope that go, yeah, do you know what? It's really shit and it's going to hurt yeah. for a long time and you're going to yeah. go through the depths of despair and you're going to feel like you're drowning. Yeah. But you will come up for air and, and you, you know, each time you come up, you come up for a bit longer and then you won't go down quite so deep and just slowly but surely it, it kind of, you find a little bit of balance, a bit of calm amongst the chaos but you've got to keep moving you, you know it's like yes. they've got to keep that momentum going which Don't is so hard yeah, yeah. yes yeah. um mm-hmm. but when you're exhausted and you know you feel so alone and isolated in it don't you it, it's really hard did the grief for you, you you know when ross died and in those moments did they ever sort of make you question your beliefs that, that, that everything you had kind of got you to that point and that the coaching and the the science the brain science did you ever go what a load of bollocks this is shit weirdly I, I I'm probably gonna go against what you might think but I, I would say weirdly no it didn't I didn't go against it I knew it was harder than I possibly could have imagined in theory I think mm-hmm. the theory of it is easier than the reality of it, but I didn't doubt it. I knew it to be true. And I knew that if I just kept doing some stuff and I kept, as you say, that they're not, not stagnating. Like the, the one thing I always say to people when they're in the early stages of grief is you don't have to feel all the feels. You don't have to feel it all at once and don't let anybody force you or rush you through your grief. You don't have to do that. I want you to move forward, but that doesn't, the way you do that doesn't really matter. That works for you. You know, at the beginning for me, I often say that in times of difficulty and trauma, I need to create, not consume. That's my thing. I need to do, I'm a do doing person. I don't need to consume stuff because consuming too much stuff can influence me and other people's opinions will get in and, you know, other stuff. And I have to just focus and, and almost busy. And to the outside eye, there was certainly when, when Ross first died, I was very busy. I was a busy person. I was doing things. I created the Happy Me Project, my, my um, online courses, and I was doing stuff. And to the outside eyes, other people, if I allowed that in, it was, oh, she's avoiding. I actually wasn't avoiding. I was crying. I was completely appropriate to the situation. I wasn't numb. I was busy and I was very adrenaline-y, but I wasn't, I wasn't un- inappropriate. I was allowing, and I, from the very beginning, said to myself, because I, from being in the hospice, we had like a month in the hospice where Ross was actively dying, and the, there was a huge, I guess the difference to other people, there was a huge amount of press surrounding Ross's death, so every major newspaper had Ross's death in it. I was inundated with stuff, with things arriving at the hospice, I mean, to the point where I had to like say to them at the hospice like don't let people in like people were trying to turn up like people who had known him it was just so inappropriate and the the press were lovely by the way and there was lots of pros and cons to that but there was a huge amount of stuff going on and a lot of people's opinions and thoughts and even the doctors in the hospice were coming to me and like but how are you really it was a lot of this kind of not unintentionally patronizing conversation with me where I was like one how the fuck do you think I am this is ridiculously hard of course it is but I'm okay I'm gonna get through this I always had that I'm very conscious of my language because language creates your stories 
And I was so conscious of what I was telling myself and what I was saying to other people was, I'm okay, I will be better. And that was, just, that was, I could cling to that. I could say that legitimately. I'm, I didn't want to tell myself I was living through a nightmare, like, because that would be my experience. I could sit in that and I legitimately could have said that as well, but I didn't. But then I remember sitting in the hospice and, then, and kind of really having a talk with myself essentially and thinking, like, you know, what is, I was thinking, like, what does grief look like? And what does being a widow look like? And what does it all mean? And how am I supposed to behave? And what am I, should I be doing this? And all the judgment we pour on ourselves. And I just thought, Holly, you've never done anything like anybody else has done around you. Why do you think you're going to do this in the way that you saw on a film once? Just do what you need to do. And I really promised myself that I would just allow it to be and I would allow myself to go through what I needed to. I was perfectly entitled to a breakdown if I wanted to. I was perfectly entitled to move on, to laugh, to... And I just thought, I'm just going to do what I need to do in this moment. And I'm going to try not to overthink it any more than that, because I don't understand the world because the world that I knew had Ross alive. I don't understand anything. I had to, you know, and I'm sure anyone who's who's listening, who has gone or is going through this will understand like nothing makes sense. How on earth can it make sense when somebody you love has died? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, even saying it now, it's like where is he? Like, it doesn't, I mean, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I really don't believe he is anywhere, but it's like, that was a person, an an energetic being with full of life. And Ross was very full of life and he's not here anymore. That's so weird. How do, how can our brains even compute that? It's so weird. I do know. I think it's, it almost feels like it's impossible sometimes, you you know, like I'm over five years in and I still sometimes have those moments where I kind of go, Simon died. He he died. He's dead. That was it. You, you know, and it like it can almost take your breath away sometimes. You, you know, I'm in a really good place with my grief. You know, I I'm very very happy in life again. I I am living a very good fulfilled life. You, you know, but I still have those moments where you go, how do, how does that work? That's that's yeah. like you know processing that and and understanding it. And I think, do we ever? I think. You know, for me, I've I've had to focus on, I guess, making sense of it in my way is is finding meaning in my life after yeah. it, and and taking the learnings because my God, you know, you know, I've only discovered self development since Simon died. This is a, and it has transformed my world. I I cannot tell you, and and would I have done that? I mean, I don't know. I can't answer those questions, but I'm grateful. For that you know and I think I have to for me look for those lessons in it that allow me to create meaning in my life and that's how maybe I make sense of it oh I totally agree and I think is I always think to myself like if our people have died then we we honor their life and we honor who they are by living as full as we can we, we honor them by living you know often I'm sure you'll get the same I'll have people that are struggling to laugh and to feel and to fall in love again or to because there's a levels of guilt they feel and I'm like your person would love to be alive and would have loved to continue and they they wanted you to live like I know I mean Ross and I I'm, I was very lucky in that we were it, Ross and I were so direct with each other Ross had 
you know, Ross was autistic and so he was very black and white in his in our conversations. I mean, not the ideal for somebody who's just found out their husband has brain cancer and he's like, well, just euthanize me if I get it. Like, you have to kill me. Like, that wasn't my ideal conversation, I'll be honest. And, and he was very much like, well, when I'm dead, just chuck me in the bin. Like, in fact, what on his in his on his funeral, like, what do you call them? I mean, the funeral thing's a whole different beast, isn't it? But he yeah. um he had them like fu- funeral cards, whatever you call them. Like the order the, of service. The program. <laughs> the program. So that's my actor. Like, What's the program? When's the interval? Um, in in that order of service, that's the one. Um, we just had on it like what Ross said to me before his second surgery, brain surgery surgery and we were having to talk about all of the stuff and and if he died in it and all of that and he just said look just tell them I was a just tell them I was all right tell them I was a good bloke like that just tell them I was all right I, I enjoyed my life that was it and and people might minimize that in some weird way like oh is that it like is that it we in life and death but for me, I look at it, Ross was 32 when he died. To have lived a life like he did, where he did whatever he wanted. I'm not saying he did, he ticked every box of every uh, aspiration, but he he lived as authentically as a human being can live and didn't have any regrets, didn't have any anything unsaid. I mean, literally nothing unsaid and, and that to his detriment a lot of the time. But he didn't have that. And some people get to a hundred and don't have that in their lives. They've never lived in that true and honest way. And I think because Ross and I had that, we had that kind of relationship where we were so black and white about everything. And we'd had so much, I mean, we had nearly 10 years together. And for those 10 years, we were together all of the time, like all of the time from the second that like, we both of us worked for ourselves. And, and so had that luxury of being together all of the time. And it was a very in, we were very intense like with each other and Ross would we would like we learned about Ross's autism and stuff and I was essentially and anyone who understands autism autistic people have topics or things they really like like hyper focus on and I was one of Ross's topics like I was one of his he was like no I mean he would gush about me and re, like in a nice like in a ridiculous way as well but like we were very intense as a couple. We were we were pals. Like people used to call us Rolly, the mix of our two names, because we were we would like trouble together. We would just get up to mischief, and it was fun. And during that time of being together, you know, we again when he had his second surgery, and we had to have those harder conversations where we recognised this ain't going away. Like the first surgery, you're all full of hope, and maybe this, maybe we can do it. And they were ticking a box to cure. Second one, it was like we're prolonging. And we know like this, we're not going to win this fight. Like this, he's going to die of it. And so with the second, the second one, we had deeper, harder conversations. And that would have been like eight years of us being together. And I remember Ross saying like, it won't sound enough. It won't sound enough. It won't seem as important as what this has been. Like it won't at all seem as important. And, and that was it. Like I, it's hard to explain in a way that doesn't sound ridiculous and like some kind of Disney film because it wasn't a Disney film. We were we would we would tell each other off as well, but like we were pals. And I think you know that's one thing. When I when I look back on everything, I think I'd do it all again. Like I all of the pain that we've experienced as going through the grief, I'd do all of that again to have had those years with Ross and to have experienced that level of connection with somebody. And that's, you know, that's some, that's something that some people, again, don't get in their lifetime. So I feel grateful for that. And I feel grateful even for the, like you said, even the experience of all of the pain, 
because the person, you know, people that meet me now, they're not meeting the same person as Ross met, you know, when I was like 23 or whatever, when we met, like, they're not meeting the same person. They're meeting somebody who's lived through the death of, of somebody that they loved. And that's a different version. Actually, in terms of, you know, moving forward in relationships for people that are listening, like, I think that's a very important kind of shift in your mind, if it helps, because for us as, as people, you know, widows, it's, you didn't break up with your person. Like, the, the, you, you, you're essentially part of you is still in a relationship with them, which is very weird because you're not. And that's hard to get your head around. But I think just, I've always known because Ross and I had that conversation. There's no, I've never felt uncomfortable about moving on in a relationship. But, and although I haven't, that's not, that's not an issue because of that. It's not something within me that makes that an issue. But I know that's a huge thing for so many people. I ask you to think about the fact that you are a different version, that this is not the same person. So it's not, you're not cheating on them. You're not, it's not that, you know, you'd still be with them, but they, but that version of you that would be with them is not the version you are now. This is a different version of you. It's, you know, there'll be elements that are worse. There'll be elements that are better and stronger and, and probably some that are weaker, but you are a different version. It's not the same person. And maybe that just shifts something in your mind that can allow you to walk forward because I want people to find love and be happy and and have things like that and I don't want them to stop themselves I know and do you know what that's such a lovely point to make it really is because you're right you know there's so much guilt and and shame and anguish isn't there around even thinking you know people even kind of just struggle saying it out loud that they might want to find someone in in the future and and I've got to be honest right from the not right from the beginning but very early days um after Simon died I was like I do not want to be on my own forever like you you know I was like I I believe life is better shared I love being with people I love love I just I'm happy being on my own as well I like my own company um but I just knew I didn't want to live the rest of my life on my on my own but even like thinking that and, and then saying it out loud to somebody, there's that, oh God, is this really bad? I don't know if I should be saying this. And But you, you know, you're right. You've got to do what feels right for you. And you do change so much, you know, and your love for them doesn't die. You, you know, that, that that continues. And even when you meet someone else, you know, I'm, I'm with Andy now. We've been together over two years and and I love them both. Yeah, you know, and, and it's if you think about your children, you know, I've got two children. I don't love either of them less. No, I love them differently because they're different people. That's so it. I love them differently, and that I was I love their own nuanced personalities. But I, in fact, even when Ross was here, we I, we always were very open and honest, and, and had very open conversations about things. And I've never believed you know, necessarily that we stay with the same person for the rest of our lives. It would be a lovely idea to think that we would, but maybe we don't because sometimes we shift in our our personalities as we grow and we age and so we know we hope that we'd grow with our people, but sometimes we don't. And so I think you have to honor where you're at in your life in this moment. And you're right, like connection as human beings, we do need human connection and we in love is a huge factor in that. And I they can sit side by side you can love your person that died and and have been in love with them and and even maybe you feel you are still in love with them that way like you you can have that and it can still sit beside being madly in love with somebody else it doesn't diminish that they're not they're not separate things you can sit right side by side and I think the only thing that needs to be taken into account is that the person that you 
decide to be with has to really understand that and that might be a different thing I, I've not been on that side of it so I don't know what that's like but they have to understand that they will always I mean I wear my wedding ring and some people find that really weird to be honest it just would feel weird not to wear it like I'm not I'm just kind of used to wearing it and I've not really considered taking it off I mean I know it's like a massive fuck off to anybody that's speaking to me but like um it, to me it's more like a tattoo like I'm like like if you, if you want to get with me, you, you also have to understand that that is a huge part of my story and existence. Like, and if that makes you uncomfortable, then a lot of the other stuff's going to make you really uncomfortable. So if you can't accept that, I've decided I'm at one. And that's not to even say that I rule out ever getting married again, because I don't. And maybe in that instance, I'll feel different about that. That's okay as well. We're allowed to change our minds as well. But right in this point in my life, I mean, I'm five, there'll be, I'm four years down the line. It'll be five years this year down the line and even you know at this stage I don't feel like I want to do that and that's that's how I feel and also the it also take into account that I have two children who are grieving and I have to respect how they are navigating this as well and what would feel I don't think they would feel great if I took the ring off right now either and 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 I think you make such a valid point now Holly about we can change our minds you don't have to make a decision now that you have to stick with for the rest of you don't have to go right I'm I'm don't I'm gonna I'm gonna leave my ring on that means I have to leave it on forever no you might you might change your mind you know you might take it off and you want to put it back on again (laughs) same with everything in life but you you know you talk about the children there um your children are gorgeous I, I haven't met them in person but I've seen them on on your Instagram and they 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 appear to be very confident, very self-aware, self-assured. Um, and it's so lovely to see. And I'm sure that's because you guide them so well in, in all that you do. And they probably are, are sick of you they're, talking they're about mine but... <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, I am. And I, I mean, I know I said about language, but I am, I'm a pain in the ass. <laughs> I am like a child and they know it. And it's like, they're like, mom, for God, why are you like this? I get a lot. Why do you do You're so annoying. Um, but they're little firecrackers and I really, you know, I think it's so weird. What's interesting about having children and, and especially when your partner has died is the genetics that come into play. I'm sure you would have seen this as well, where I'm like, how are you like that? Cause he's not here. It's and that so is, weird. <laughs> that is like, I mean, Brooke, my oldest, like when she's being Mardi and moody and all that, and which, um, you know, she's a tween, so it's frequent. Um, you know, I'm not slagging her off. She's not here. Don't tell her. Don't grass on me, anybody. Um, she, you know, when she's, I'm like, oh my God, that's your dad's face. Like I can see him. So, and, but just even like personality stuff with the kids and like how they school and like how they learn and like so weird how much of that is strangely nature like you sort of assume it's all nurture and I know that Ross and I there was lots of similarities in our directness and impulsivity and things like that which we see in the children and um but it's still weird it's still weird seeing and I actually a comfort to the girls a lot of the time I'll say to the girls you know what's lovely is that because the girls know I don't you know and it doesn't matter what anybody believes you can believe what ever makes you feel comfortable always but I don't believe in an afterlife Ross didn't believe in afterlife he was an atheist and and didn't believe in God in fact he said if I get there and there is something I'm gonna he's gonna he's gonna get it so bad 
if there is an actual God, he is going to be in for such an argument with me because I'm fuming. There's so many things. Babies get AIDS. What the hell? Like, no, absolutely not. But anyway, your God might be different to that version of God. I'm sure it is. But they, because the children, I've always said from the beginning, believe whatever you want. If you believe in a God in the sky or you believe in reincarnation, I promise you, you can believe whatever feels good. If you believe dad is there and you want to talk to him in a heaven, if it's that kind of thing, you do you. My children haven't felt that that they've they've said they'd sort of like I think Brooke sort of said I sort of would like to believe there was something there's a kind of a hope and I'm not going to be the, I'm going to say anything to her because because of my beliefs I'm not I've said to them all the time I'm not necessarily right I could be wrong none of us know because we're not dead so we don't know and so we've always just talked very openly about everything and discussed things and it's um it's just amazing to see how they have shaped themselves into being very like him and lots of similarities and you know how they've just how they've navigated and we talk very openly about death we talk very openly about everything like there's no from the beginning of Ross being in the hospice I promised them I would never lie to them I would never lie to them and that is hard because when Ross was in the hospice, Brooke actually rang me and bear in mind, the girls were away from me for a while because I was in the hospice and Brooke rang me and said, mom, will dad ever come out of the hospice? And I went, no. And she went, will he does that mean he will die in the hospice? And I said, yeah, he will die in the hospice. And she said, so when you come home, does that mean that dad's dead? And I was like, yeah. So when I came home, there was that moment of like elation, mum's home, like mum's back. And then that realization of like what that meant that I'd come home. And from that, everything they asked me, and it doesn't matter whether it's grief related or death related or sex related, they will get an answer off me. They will get an answer because we've had to create this dynamic of trust. When you're living that, you have to have that trust. You have to trust each other. You have to make space for each other's emotions. And, you know, I'm sure you talk to your children about your emotions as well. And I think that's really key. Like my kids will know, I'll say I've had a really crappy grief day today like I've I really cried over this and I'll say specifically what it was because I want them to know it's okay and it's okay to to cry and it's okay to be angry at it and we joke I mean we have horrific um death banter which um you know we laugh about death and make awful I have awful gallows humor about everything every single film that we watch I'm like how many dead parents are there any dead parents and they're like oh there's loads of this one loads of dead parents in this film it's a real treat (laughs) dead mom dead dad and it's horrible but you kind of have to because like how else do you I mean humor is a great way to get through all of the chaos and Ross was very you know Ross was so blunt and so like funny that it, it's natural that we would do that as well and, and it wouldn't feel like weird that we're making a joke like that about it but yeah do you, do you, it's funny actually I was I've I've done a, a, a podcast with Gary Gary Scribbler and and we were talking about humor in grief mm. and it, I think it's really important I think there's a place in it and I think and I I, you know for me I was a, a nurse and a midwife before so I think you develop quite a dark humor doing those yes. things anyway because it's like a coping mechanism and then you you know like we do we make really inappropriate jokes and if people are around us you can see there's that like yeah, uncomfortable yeah uh, what, what, what do we do do we laugh do we just ignore yeah. it <laughs> yeah people hate it and I get it because it's like you don't know where your place is in that but 
I, you know, you sometimes you've just got to laugh at the absolute ridiculousness the sometimes of this. Yeah, <laughs> just the absurdity of it. Like, what the hell? Why is he dead? Like, why are they dead? Like, yeah. what? The hell? That's ridiculous. What? So this is just this is life, is it? So you fall in love with people and you love, and then they just die. What the hell is that about? That's rude. <laughs> You know, like, rude. I mean, I think it like when it's the trivial, sometimes it's the stupid trivial things that will, as we know in grief, that will push you over the edge and make you cry. And the, the, the things that annoy you, which are just not relevant in the bigger grand scheme of things. Like I hate taking the bins out. I'm a tiny human being and taking the bins out is a job. It's an effort. Getting the been open and dragging I mean five foot one and like seven and a half stone it's everything's big everything's heavy it's an effort right so Ross would always do that like Ross would carry things for me like this sounds such a stupid like thing but he would get things from up high he was six foot like he would carry things and I'm like there's part of me that's really annoyed at him for dying that I have to put the bins out. There's a stupid part of me that's like, as if I have to put the bins out and carry all the shopping out of the car and like, and, and I'll do it because I've got small person syndrome and I'll do everything always because I'll, I just will. But there's those stupid moments of like the tiny things in grief that people don't see and don't, they don't seem big enough to warrant anything. And there's not anything anybody else could do anyway, but I guess it's the the big moments of like the birthdays and the the you know, whether it's Valentine's Day is coming and all that that will be triggering for a lot of people or the the Christmases and people really rally round in those moments because they assume they're the moments and you know what I would I'm sure your listeners will say they're rarely the moments like they're not the moments mm-hmm. because you prepare for those moments and you're kind of ready for that to oh is that going to impact me and it's not those moments it's the moments when you find a letter with their handwriting on it that's the moments or it's the the place that you haven't been in a while and then you stumble and you think oh my god the last time I was here I was with that person I was with my person and and they're the moments it's the the seemingly insignificant moments or comments that will will get you when you least expect it and nobody can understand those moments they're very personal and you know that that's the tough thing with grief it's a it is a very personal journey and even those that love and care about you, they, they can't walk it for you. You got to no. walk it yourself. What what would you say was your kind of your go to in your grief? What helped you? You know, aside from you doing the, the, all of this kind of you know mind work, life work. Mm. What what was your what support structure did did you have around you that helped you? Um, I mean doing stuff helps me so like whether that's I'm very creative so I like I like to physicalize things so you know drawing and and doing things like I need to have a thing to do I'm not a I'm definitely not a very still person so I don't sit still very easily so I've I think just I mean just certainly talking about stuff and not I don't find I, I can't be inauthentic like I find that really challenging so just saying what I think has helped me a lot and physically like in terms of activities like physical physically doing things and having things to do and writing and that's all cathartic for me as well as being intertwined in what I do as, as work but also just really trying to I mean I'm very I'm, I'm an introvert so I don't necessarily get comfort or energy from being around I'm I'm a confident introvert so that's really confusing to people but 
I like people. I'm very confident. I've got no issues walking into a room full of people and having conversations with everybody. Then I'll probably love it in that moment, but it will drain the goddamn life out of me after about an hour. And then I'll want my social battery will die and I'll just be sat there like zoned out. Um, so I know that about myself. So I don't necessarily find comfort in being around people. So I didn't even in the very beginning stage. And I know that's, I guess, possibly unusual for some people's way of dealing with it. I didn't really want people around me. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to, to deal with it. Like the, when, after the funeral, day after the funeral, I took the kids to Butlins and everybody, I actually had like a voucher and I rang Butlins and I was like, I had the idea. I thought the kids will like that. That'll be something nice for them to do afterwards. And we'll just go away and we'll, we'll work it out. We'll work out what this looks like being a three. And I rang Butlins and they didn't have any space where I wanted in the nice plush fancy like one lodge thing that they had. And I wanted that one because I didn't want to go in the other ones because I've been at Butlins as a kid. Look, I'm not being snobby. I just, I, I'd be, I'd had my time. I'd do my time in the, in the, in the crappy ones and the chalets. <laughs> and the chalets, right? And Butlins is good form, but I, I wanted it to be a bit more luxurious when I went and I had a voucher. So um, I rang them and I was like, can you get me in there? Didn't have any space. And I was like, please, like it's my husband's funeral tomorrow. Like, just give me a, give me a break. Find a, find a solution. And they did. And they were, Butlins were really good. And they put, even put like games and stuff and balloons and teddies in the room for the girls and stuff. And we got there, were really lovely. And, um, but at the time, everybody was like, should we come with you? Should we like, should we book in? And I was like, no, like, and that sounds a weird comfort, but I needed, I needed the, I mean, listen, me being on my own is not ever silent. Like my head is very, very noisy. So, but I needed to navigate that noise on my own. I didn't want everybody there because when other people are there, I actually just find myself like protecting them and I'm not dealing with anything. And I needed that space to do that. So for me, getting through was really being very honest and vocal for me. That's me navigating my stuff is talk it out. Maybe talk it to a camera. So I did a lot of vlogging on my YouTube channel. And I guess, you know, that can be linked to my work, but there was a, there was a catharsis, can't even say the word, catharticism, catharsis, yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> um, there was something in that of me being able to just speak that out mm-hmm. and, and then just speaking to people who really understand me and not the, you know, the people that follow me online, like people who really know me and know who I am, being able to say, I feel good or I feel bad or and just allowance I mean I think more than anything for me it's been I don't know how to do this like I'm doing it in real time so I'll just allow what comes to come and and whatever that will be and and I will look for the next good thing that's always in my mind that mantra of just find the next good thing there's another thing coming whether that's a person or whether it's an experience, look for the next good thing. And me and the girls have always tried to create little memories and experiences and even on things like birthdays and all the stuff that for the girls is more impactful. We'll always aim to do things like Father's Day and, and we'll always we'll go away or we'll do a something. Or, and we don't, we're not, not acknowledging that we're doing that because of Ross being dead. Like we will make it something about Ross. Like if it's his birthday, we might have like one year we had like a Disney and dad day and we did dressed up in Disney stuff and did Disney things, but also did a quiz about, Ross about like a dad quiz and we always try to do things like that so I think really living like we said before trying to find real experiences where I can go I didn't 
I don't want to give up. Like, I don't want that to be it. I didn't want, as you said, my story to be, well, at 32, that was it. Like, husband died and that was it. Give up, <laughs> done. Like, I don't want that to be my story. That's a crap story, that is. Like, that's not for me. And I knew that Ross wouldn't. I mean, Ross would have been absolutely fuming if I'd done that. He'd been like, what the fuck? Get back up. What are you yeah. doing? I know he would have. Like, I, and I think that was often harder. People didn't know Ross or certainly didn't know Ross and I as a couple. People who did got it because they were like, they know like they just know how we were but people who didn't would be like but are you okay and, and I'm like well I'm fucking I was until you did the head cock and then <laughs> I was fine until you, I, w- I was fine until you brought up the you you know <laughs> my dead husband and now I'm thinking about my dead husband I was fine I was just buying biscuits biscuit <laughs> do you know I think that that is just Two things strike me and, and, and they they kind of strike me a lot in what I do and, and what I've noticed um, with working with different people and talking to people like yourself is that one self-awareness is absolutely key, like understanding what works, what doesn't, who you are, how you function, what makes you feel good, what doesn't and, and, and leaning into those things but also trusting your instincts, letting your body guide you. There's no right or wrong to this. We'll all do it differently. And that's absolutely okay. You don't have to search books and the internet and groups for answers. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, finding other people that are going through something similar, if that's what you want, can be incredibly helpful and powerful. But if you don't want that, that's okay too. Did you know, like, just really listen to you, you you know become aware of what you want and just spend some time like you said going away to Butlins and just kind of thinking right what what do I need what how can I make some sense of the chaos in my head and all the time other people around you and well-meaning and so supportive but they want to give you the answers they want to try and fix you they want to make suggestions they want to tell you and everything in your head is saying every time they're coming up with all you're thinking is can you make him come back alive now so what's the point in anything that you're saying if it's not that then it's nothing like that is the thing like people don't recognize that we do and and I'm not saying that you have to do it alone as you said communities and support and family of course they're helpful and if it feels good to you it feels good if you want to sit stay at your mom's house for after it happens and and not you know not do any of the stuff that we've talked about that's absolutely fine as well and it's that intuitive thing that the thing I always think about when it comes to resilience and grit and all of that stuff is you your body, literally your brain wants to survive this. So in those darkest times, your brain is, your brain will survive it. Like it, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's not going to be at times going to be really hard, but you can do this, but you have to listen to what you need and drown out the noise of, of what other people are saying, because that will cloud your judgment. I mean, I went to therapy after a year after Ross had died and I went because I mean, we paid for health insurance mostly. And I was like, should use that. They should pay for, you know, pay for so use this stuff. But a lot of it was because I felt like, and again, bear in mind, this is literally my work as well as I was living it as an experience. I felt like I was dealing with stuff appropriately. I was crying. I was feeling, I was distracting. Sometimes I was laughing. I was feeling, I didn't feel like I was dealing with it in the wrong way. And if there is a wrong, there's not a wrong way, but I didn't feel like I wasn't, I didn't feel stuck. I didn't feel like I was avoiding it altogether. I knew I was very self-aware that there was things I was doing that were busying, but I was aware there was certain things I was avoiding. So I wasn't listening to certain songs or going to certain places, 
that's okay. There is place for that. You've got to allow, it's almost like letting the fizz out of a bottle of pop, right? You don't have to just crack it off and explode your grief everywhere and pain. I was just, I can listen to those songs now. Might still sting, but and give it time. Like I needed that that sort of time to do that. And I think that was really important for me at the very beginning. And then when I went to therapy, um, I went because everyone was like, oh, but are you okay? And doing the head cocky thing. And like, oh, are you okay? But are you really okay? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Like I was, I, I spun myself out. So I was like, then maybe, maybe I'm not. Maybe they're seeing something I'm not. Maybe I'm missing a trick. You know, I'm a big believer as a coach myself. And I know you are as well, that coaches need coaches and therapists need therapists. And, and like not, I'm not immune to that. Like I have coaches that I work with and I do do the, the work that I, I do with other people. So I was like, maybe I should just go and see a therapist and talk it out and see if I'm like missing a trick and also like you know utilize the fact that we spend money on insurance and so I went to the therapist and honestly I mean one the therapist shared probably shouldn't have that her husband had died so already I'm like "Mm, do you want me to coach you is that what we're talking about here um but like I I I worked through with the therapist and on like third session she just went you don't need to be here like you don't need to be here. Like you can stay and do the full six sessions. I mean, I did because then I like money in that. Like I thought we should pay. I'll pay for that session. I'll still have. We'll have a chat and a cup of tea. Be fine. But I, she was like, I think you just need to stop listening to what other people are saying to you. You seem to me like you're pr- appropriately dealing with everything that you're feeling, that you're doing the thing. You're allowing tears. You you're swearing when you need to, and you're angry when you need to. And you know that's not to say that I. I that sounds, you know, that sounds very breezy way of me dealing with it. But I, I felt like all of the emotions I was feeling, the intense ones and the not so intense were just appropriate. And actually, since that really was a wake up call, I mean, certainly a therapist saying to you, you don't need to be here was like, it was kind of like, just trust yourself. Yeah. You knew you didn't need to be here. You knew you were dealing with it. And, and just because it looks different to how people are comfortable that's on them. Let them deal with that shit. That ain't my business. And that's, that's really how I've dealt with it since. And I know that there was always, and probably is people that will, will consider what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. It's none of their business and, and you're it's just none of their business in, in any aspect of your life, whether it's grief or not, other people's opinions of you and your things that you do is none of your business. You don't need to you mess your own head up by doing that tune into yourself and you will know your body will know what you need and there's going to be sometimes you need a little zhuzh along and that's where you and I will come in to to play where we might be able to help in that way you need a little zhuzh and you need a, a few things you could learn to but that will still come from you intuitively knowing I'm not coping or I need some help that will come from you it doesn't come from somebody some well-meaning possibly person coming in and going you should probably go to therapy or you should get a coach or it's not going to come from anybody else it's going to come from you listening to this and going right I need to speak to Karen or I need to speak to Holly or I need to join a club or I need to join a running club or I need to start knitting I don't know what you want to do but (laughs) whatever it is eat biscuits that's my answer to most things oh cake (laughs) <laughs> okay and biscuits of both but um you're right and and you know I normally like to kind of end up with what would you say and I think you've you've kind of answered that question so brilliantly there that you know trust in yourself follow your your instincts and and find give yourself the time as well because yeah 
you know, at the beginning, we have so many big questions, don't we? Like, oh my God, who am I? Where do I fit in in the world? What am I going to do next? How am I going to parent these children? Where am I going to live? What am I going to do for you? And you're just like, what does my future look like? I don't know. And you're desperately searching for the answers to the questions. And when you can't find them within a couple of months, you're kind of going, I'm useless. I can't do this. I can't make a decision. And it's like, do you know what? Just just listen to your body let it guide you in the moment find what you need for now because the answers do come don't they you, you know they they kind of slot in but it does take a hell of a lot and I'm talking like years yeah and we're, and we're still learning I and mean, one of my clients this week and um, this is not grief related but I think it's very related to what you've just said one of my clients came up with an affirmation like for those that don't know affirmations it's like a, a sentence a mantra something you say out loud that helps to train your brain in the direction you want and and his affirmation he came up with with was I don't have to have all the answers and I love it I just love it I've thought about it a lot since I've told him that I have but I I've thought about it a lot since because it we often either slip into perfectionism or we're going to perfect our grief and I want I want to know all of the stuff now I want to know what the next 10 years are going to look like I don't have to have all the answers should be the answer to that like you don't have to have how on earth are you gonna you've just just happened like even if it was 10 years ago it's still we don't we're we're all trying our best we're all messy chaotic human beings doing our best and you chuck a lot of grief and pain in the mix of that and a global pandemic of course just to Mm. mix into that grief it's um (laughs) it's a potent mix so just be kind to yourself and recognize you don't have to have all the answers Yeah, absolutely, Holly. Do you know what? I think what you offer the world is just so brilliant. You know, you've helped me so much, you know, in in my journey with what I do. And I know you help so many others. You've got, I know you do your one-to-one coaching. You've got your membership, which is just awesome, isn't it? Like for £20 a month, what do you mean? It's just crazy. I need a slap. I mean, the the Happy Me Project membership, for those that don't know, is it's my no-nonsense self-development membership. And And I kept it at 20 pounds a month because I really, I I know my audience for starters. And a lot of my audience isn't affluent, not all, it's varying degrees, but I appreciate that normal men and women who just want to literally learn how to feel more happy and less crappy. And whether that's grief related or not, not that we specific, we've had you in obviously talking about grief in in the membership, which was amazing. It's not a grief membership. It's about self-development, but it's, um, you know, we just need that check-in and that community. And I, I wanted to keep the price low because I didn't want it to be one of those things where it's like, you know, you really want the thing and then it's you hit a paywall and you're like I just don't know if I can get in this and I need it now and it just it, it didn't sit with where I was at and and I have high as you say one-on-one coaching is different and it's a higher pain because you get more of my time but um, with the membership I wanted bums on seats as many people as possible that can be helped and also be part of that movement and that community and and like we found you know being around people that are not like I, I always worry when I might stuff's called the happy me project it sounds like it's like some like utopia where everybody's like I'm so happy all of the time like it's creepy and um, it's not like that it's actually a space where people can go I'm really really struggling but I want to work out how to navigate that I want to it's a challenge it's not a, I'm giving up and and certainly a community space like that can help you to to move forward and I know you do that within your work very specifically within grief and that's so important and not especially with being a widow is being around people 
and who get it. And, and that's why when you're working with people, it's so great because they know you, you've been in the trenches. They know you're in the trenches sometimes. They know you get it on a level that somebody else won't get. And that's important. I share my flaws and my chaos in the membership and, and on my social media because I want people to know you are not alone. Mm-hmm. You're not alone. And that was really important. And the members that I have attracted into the membership have been people that really have that ethos and, and will share the good, the bad and the ugly. And I think, doesn't that make us feel seen and heard? Then I just really think that matters. To and us. normal. You, you know, I think there's this idea sometimes when you're following people on social media and they seem to have all their shit together and it's like, oh God, they, how do they do it? Their lives are so perfect. And like you say, it's a snippet of information you're seeing. If you're striving for perfection, you're never going to, to, to achieve anything because it doesn't exist. We all are dealing with shit. We are all dealing yes. with our struggles. And as much as you know, we have the tools at our disposal. I still get health anxiety. I still have bad days. I still talk myself down sometimes, but it's kind of just recognizing it and shifting it so that you can help yourself feel better, isn't it? You you get better at bounce. You get quick. I think the the more you work on this stuff and the more that you work with people like you and I, the more you listen to stuff and like this and, and, and you read books and the more you understand it, the quicker you can get out of your own brain spiral yes. of, of doing it and, and become, I've forgotten the word for it. There is a word for this, but it's being self-aware where you can go, oh, I'm doing the thing. And even in, that doesn't mean you won't be still doing the thing. Like I'm talking down to myself. Okay. I'm, I know I'm talking down. This isn't very nice. And you, you almost having this like, um, like conversation, you know, you're doing the thing, but you're still doing the thing. And mm. it's not that you, you, you won't ever do it. It just means that you can often bring yourself out of it in a, in a quicker way, being aware of what your triggers are and what your own special nuanced chaos is. Once you get that, you can go, oh, if this happens, I know I'm going to spiral out into doing the thing that I do when the unhealthy thing, and you can kind of get ahead of yourself sometimes on that stuff, but that does come with practice. And that's why working with people and working in communities and and regularly doing stuff can be so beneficial to you yeah 100 percent, it is and and you do it so well holly so well so how can people find you so if they head to iamhollymatthews.com slash all my stuff they can find all my stuff i try and keep it simple you know like so they can find i have a podcast as well the happy me project podcast i have a free community on facebook where people can just hang out in there and, and sometimes i will go live although i have to admit not so regularly as i am focused on the membership but the membership and all of the links for that are there my instagram my youtube what else do i do twitter sometimes linkedin now and then don't really get it that much but I, i'm on there uh, but you can come and hang out with me on there i show up on instagram and facebook the more regularly and the membership is really my focus and um yeah that's where they can find. just google holly matthews i mean you will find all kinds on there and if you can't find me on there then google is broken and you should phone somebody to come and fix it <laughs> that's so funny holly you're an absolute superstar you really are thank you so much for your time and, and sharing all of that with us I know it's going to help so many. It really is. So bless your heart. Thank you so much. And and I'll put all your information in the show notes so that people can can find you there as well. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for listening today on The Widow Podcast. If you would like to find out more about how I can help you, please visit my website, www.karensutton.co.uk. 
I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch, let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief. I look forward to hearing from you.